Hi there, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 3, Episode 12 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. As always, if you're looking for a comprehensive overview of what we discussed during this episode and when, then the show notes will be your best friend. I will, however, give you the usual brief overview. In Italy, we unpacked the really quite ominous ownership situation at Salernitana. The side from the south coast of Italy find themselves in real danger of being kicked out of Serie A. In Germany, we put Hoffenheim under the microscope, focusing in particular on the coaching style of Sebastian Hoeneß and some of the club's more exciting younger players, including 23-year-old David Raum. Raum has been nothing short of a sensation down the left for Hoffenheim this season. Elsewhere in Italy, we considered Alaves' decision to sack Javi Calleja during the Christmas holidays, while in France we asked ourselves if Teje Savanier might be the perfect wildcard pick for France's World Cup squad at the 2022 World Cup. We looked at all of those topics and so much more in our usual detailed way. This episode is, of course, produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops' subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio, and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit freelancefootballops.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. Right, on now with the episode. Have a lovely new year when it comes, or if you're listening after new year, hopefully your new year's eve and new year's day were highly enjoyable. Stay safe, stay well, enjoy the episode. Final episodes of the year. It's been a really quite enjoyable year recording the podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed listening to it. We were just chatting before we came on air about how we spent our Christmas day. Uh, and Michael Jones, sounds like you had a lovely one. How was your Christmas, Michael? Yeah, it was really good, thank you. I was saying to you before that I think it's the first Christmas I can remember in a long time, Secret Santa aside, so I had a football-free free Christmas in terms of presents. So, yeah, I'm more than ready to get back recording here tonight. Absolutely, Michael. And one story in particular I'm, I'm really intrigued to hear about from you, but we'll, we'll get on to that shortly. Rudy Barlow, how are you? How was your Christmas? Yeah, it was pretty low-key, to be honest. And I have to echo Michael's um, travails in terms of the presence. None of my reading material this year was football-related, which really is a, a turn-up for, for the books, so to speak. Ah, well, I'm sure you'll still find the time to buy some more football books for your bookshelf <laughs> shortly no, no doubt but, yeah. no doubt no doubt yeah well uh, I think I touched on there this story that I'm intrigued to hear about from Michael and that is I think going to be where we will start this episode now the end of the year is nigh we are recording on Wednesday the 29th of December this episode will be with you on the 31st of December, the last day of the year. So the end of the year is nigh, and so too may be the demise of Woli Salernitana, who sit bottom of Serie A. 
The Campanian side have suffered four consecutive defeats in the league, picking up just eight points all season. As it so happens, their expected relegation could happen even sooner than expected by way of expulsion thanks to their murky ownership situation. Tell us more, Michael. Yeah, so to put it short, I mean, Salernitana are owned by somebody who's much more well-known than the club to many fans outside of Italy and Europe, and in Italy, probably in the form of Claudio Latito, who is also the owner, the shrewd owner of Lazio. And that in itself lies where the problem is. Now, there's some really good articles on this. So if you do want to take it a bit further in terms of your reading, I'd really recommend do so on The Athletic and uh, Nicky Pandini for The Guardian as well. But essentially what happened is, and it's Salernitana were reformed 10 years ago. This was a club who have spent, this is just their third season in the top flight since uh, World War II. And they returned this season after being reformed 10 years ago. And that was under the ownership of a trustee group, which at the head of it was Claudio Latito. Now, at the time in itself, this was against Italian football rules in terms of relatives owning more than one club in Italy. However, due to Salernitana being so far down the Italian footballing pyramid and so far removed from the possibility of ever facing Lazio, the Italian football board were quite happy to let this happen on the basis that they kept them away from cup competitions, which was generally just by keeping one team in one part, half of the draw and the other in the other, on the basis that they never thought Salernitana would really progress. Yet, as we should know from Latito, is that he is, like I said, he's a very shrewd footballing guy who has, you know, on a very shoestring budget, even at the highest level with Lazio, has produced a team that has constantly challenged with teams spending way more in the past few years by a smart recruitment and good use of loan systems. And that's very much what he did with Salernitana as well. And through using it as a platform for many loan players from Lazio, they've been able to gradually rise through the divisions, through the ranks, until an unlikely, even last season, an unlikely promotion to Serie A. Now, when it came to face that they would be in the same division, decisions had to be made. And Latito was told that with sort of Lazio being the primary interest of him, that Salernitana had to either be sold by the start of this season or face expulsion from the league. Now, Latito had already negotiated a few things before that had helped Salernitana sort of stay under his ownership previously. He had, when they were first bought by him, again, it was against the rules, but they found a way of getting around it. And he did so again by getting an extension until the end of this year. Now, the so 29th day, I believe this episode goes out on New Year's Eve. So that is the deadline for Salernitana to be sold. And as of yet, there are no buyers. Now, the three interested parties, and the latest that's been reported, uh, Forza Italian Football reported it today, was that there are that as long as they have a deal agreed in principle, almost like you may see a transfer on transfer deadline day for players on New Year's Eve, then it will be okay. And you know, they can continue their what looks like a short spell in Serie A anyway, with themselves sitting on a mere eight points so far this season. But 
it's not looking good for them. And, you know, two days to go for a new ownership, it's really the value of the club is quickly plummeting to approximately 15 million euros as per these reports at the moment. And I think it's, you know, they're the options really. And I think it's quite sad, regardless of what's going to happen, that Salernitana's return to the top league hasn't been more fruitful. I think you look there, one of the the second of the three seasons I've had in the top flight with this one being the third one was in their 98 to 1999 season when they brought in the likes of Gennaro Gattuso, Rigobert Song, who didn't really feature too much, you know, some real cool players from the past. It was Gattuso's return from Rangers, um, which led him to playing for Salernitana. And that overspending, which got them there at that time, eventually led to them going bankrupt in the mid-noughties and eventually, you know, leading to this reform. And I think in that respect, it's quite sad that it looks like it's not going to be long-lasting. But I think also a sadder, um, aftermath of it all is that it's another team from the south of Italy whose future isn't looking too good. And when we look in the broader picture in the last few years, we've had Palermo, who have really undergone a decline in the last few years. There's a really sad story about Catania in the last week or two, a team that are virtually almost out of business, a team that only had Papu Gomez six or seven years ago and we're doing okay in the top tier. So that's what the situation is for Salernitana at the moment. If they do continue in Serie A, it doesn't look like it'll be locked for long. But for their sake and for their fans' sake, you do really hope that they can continue playing in the top division and a new owner is found. One of the promoted sides who have enjoyed a far more fruitful return to the top tier are Aurelio Andrea Zoli's Empoli. At the halfway point, Empoli can boast victories over local rivals Fiorentina and Juventus. And yet, Compared to the likes of Hellas Verona and Bologna, who have earned widespread praise this season, Empoli have gone about their business more quietly in a manner befitting their squad, kind of bereft of big names. They actually sit above both Hellas Verona and Bologna in the league. What do you think has been the key to Empoli's success this season, Michael? Yeah, I think there's a few factors, and we did discuss them at the beginning of the season. If those who have been listening sort of um, may remember when they beat, defeated Juventus, like you said, at the beginning of the season. And what was really impressive about that was that when they were pr- promoted, it was under Alessio Dionisi, who's now the Sassuolo coach, and they went underwent this massive overhaul with about 30 comings and goings in terms of the playing squad for the season. And since then, they've really improved as a team. And I think a lot of it's to do with and- Andrea Zoli's bold counter-attacking play which has really suited them they've got some great stats in terms of um what they've done this season they're fourth for tackles they complete the most tackles in the final third this season there's a a good balance in terms of all over the pitch I think and they've got a spearhead in the terms of in terms of Andrea Pinamonti a striker who one of a really exciting generation of Italian strikers coming through and you may think of the ones we've got at Sassuolo at the moment, but Pinamonti's on seven goals this season, already his highest return at the top level on loan from Inter Milan, who re-signed him last year. And he looks set to be a key player in Italy over the next few years. And Pinamonti is a really busy, aggressive striker, his second most shots in the league only to Vlahovic. And I just think there's there's been a great balance with recruitment in the team, and which has really worked together with this bold counter-attacking play and I think one of the things that they've done well is that they've kept 
key players from the promoted side, but they've also really improved the team as well. Nadim Bajrami, Albanian international, just 22 years of age, uh, formerly of Grasshoppers in Switzerland, has already registered. He's just one goal short already this season of the most goals he scored in a season in attacking midfielder, whereas also he's registering seventh for key passes. And he's been key to that counter-attacking play, very similar in terms of how they played to Hellas Verona. And I think there's also really exciting players elsewhere. You've had Liam Henderson, a guy, another guy, you know, I'm sure you two follow relatively closely, um, you know, after his time in Scotland. And he's one of those who has, I think he's never looked out of depth in Italy, but he's flirted between the first and second tier. But under the current management of Andrea Zoli, he's really flourished this season, as has the likes of Peter Stojanovic, another player, and who's, again, kind of flirted between the top two divisions and is really starting to thrive now. And I think this is one of the most interesting things and what the reason itself why I think Empoli have gone under the radar is that Andrea Zoli is actually 68 years old. And normally when we talk about these teams that have come up with these you know, bold, exciting counter-attacking styles. We, you know, we think of maybe, okay, they didn't come up with Igor Tudor, but we think of him, we think of Juric at Torino, and we think of these managers who are sort of destined for great things. If, if anything, this may be the twilight of Andrea Zoli's managerial career. But nevertheless, what he seems to have done is create a really sustainable side going forwards. And I think what is also really exciting for them in terms of their, you know, they're clearly very broad in terms of the types of players that they recruit and they've got a massive scouting network. And essentially, if clubs see, start to see this, the quality of player they may be able to attract could improve. And it does bode really well for Empoli going forwards. And hopefully they can build on this for the second half of the season. I think I misheard you at the start there. I thought you said bold counter-attacking play. And uh, <laughs> I really had to catch myself there. But speaking of bold... Uh, following the Christmas break, a huge game will get the action going again as Juventus will host Luciano Spalletti's Napoli. Uh, just two months ago, Napoli had a 16-point gap over Massimiliano Allegri's Juventus side. However, an old lady victory in their upcoming encounter would leave the Bianconeri just two points behind Spalletti's men and firmly in the driving seat with two key Napoli players also away at AFCON 2021. To stop the rot, what issues should Spalletti prioritise, Michael? I think when we looked at the title race and you talked about that 16-point gap a few weeks ago when we were looking at Napoli and Milan, AC Milan, and it looked like it could potentially be a two-horse race early on. I think they had a seven-point gap over Inter Milan, who, are now, who have now got a seven-point gap coincidentally over Napoli and it looks like that's going to get bigger, is that Napoli maybe looked the favourites in the first few months of the season. Such was the strength of their starting lineup, and such is Spelati is definitely one of those managers who is a bit of a system manager, but in a really exciting attacking sense. And, you know, his teams generally monopolise possession, they're great at breaking down teams, and they attack through various different patterns of play. And, however what's really been the undoing of Napoli in the past couple of months has been injuries. They've lost the spine of their team, essentially, if you think about it. They've lost Khalidou Koulibaly to injury at centre-back. They've lost Andre Frank Zambarangisa, one of the two players at AFCON 2021. He'll be going next month with Cameroon. 
in midfield, who'd been excellent since signing from Fulham, and Victor Simeon up front, who has been the talisman striker. And that's maybe where the biggest problems have. And I think we've spoken a few times about this over the last couple of years since the Simeon's arrival, that they replaced or their backup striker signed to him was Andrea Patania, known as the bull, really bulky, aggressive striker. But for what he has in sort of sheer physical presence, really lacks for in clinical, in, you know, terms of clinical finishing and also in terms of just, you know, taking up chances. And Napoli's defeats haven't been disastrous by any means. You know, two of them have been 3-2 defeats to Atalanta and into Milan, two of the sort of really informed teams in the country at the time. But then the last two, or two of the last three defeats have been to Empoli and Spezia. And Spezia, they had a expected goals of two and the one against them was 0.3, yet they still ended up on the losing side. And I think it just goes to show that there really is a lack of quality sort of fitting of what Spalletti needs at the moment. They're attacking options. He's having to use Zielinski, Peter Zielinski, another really pivotal player for them, maybe a bit more advanced than I think it should be. Dries Mertens isn't quite the player he once was. And then you've also got the future of Lorenzo Insigne, who looks like he could be joining Toronto at the end of the season. So there's all this uncertainty and maybe a bit of trouble behind the scenes at Naples. And if ever the time, Napoli have a good track record of recruiting in January. When they lost Jorginho, they did eventually replace with a multitude of defensive players in midfield with Diego Demme and Stanislav Lobotka, who have both been pretty steady since arriving two years ago. And I think that's the kind of window they need again now, but in terms of attacking players and a striker, and I think a striker is absolutely pivotal. I don't think this game is a given. Juventus have caught them up, but Juventus themselves have had quite easy opposition compared to Napoli's recent run. But if Juventus do pick up the victory, Napoli have the likes of Sampdoria and Fiorentina, two of the most informed teams going into the Christmas break, will be heading in high momentum and full of technical players. And it really could be an uncertain 2022 for Napoli if they don't get the recruitment right in the January transfer window. Enlightening as always, Michael, thank you very much. We are going to take a quick break before coming back to discuss the latest goings on in Spain with Rudy Barlow. We'll be right back. In Spain, the players are enjoying a brief winter break after finishing up for the holidays. But even if the players might be getting some rest, we all know that football never really sleeps. On that note, the players at Alaves will be returning to a new face on the bench after Javi Calleja became the sixth managerial casualty of the season on Tuesday morning. Curiously enough, that sacking took place a full week after the club's 5-2 loss against Villarreal with José Luis Mendelibar subsequently appointed in Calleja's stead. Why wasn't this done more immediately after that final game of the year, if indeed the decision to part ways with Calleja had already been made, Paulo? Well, the the rumour is on the uh, streets of the internet is that they were waiting until January to sack him so that they could avoid him paying him some of his severance package, which is a... It's, it's not the classiest way of going about business, to be perfectly honest. And if the listeners will allow me some some speculation, uh, frivolous speculation here. I wonder if Kayeka, seeing this kind of very farcical state of execution, just said, look, you can, you can agree to end my contract three days before 
and I'll just leave because Kieka, in contrast to Alaves, has, has shown a little bit more class, especially with his kind of leaving statement where he thanked the club for the opportunity and uh, wrote a very good sort of open letter to the fans. But yeah, it's um, it's an interesting decision. Kieka, admittedly, they are in the relegation zone, which Fair enough, that's kind of grounds for a sacking in, in many cases. And they are sat 18th on 15 points, but they are level with Hitafe and Elche above them. Across his records, he's won nine, drawn six, and lost 14. Again, it's not great, but he's also averaging 1.14 points per match in charge of Alaves. And if you average that out, you're you're over 40 points this season. So over the course of 38 games, you can argue that he would have he would have got to that mark, which is almost certain sort of safety. And I'm just not quite sure what Alaves, or at least the decision makers in Alaves, were expecting from the season. Because if you look at their squad, for me, it's by maybe perhaps with Cadiz, by far and away the worst in the division. It's In terms of quality, they re- really are kind of lacking a little bit, especially if you look at their summer recruitment. They lost a couple of sort of familiar faces but the only person that the only player that came in over the summer who was playing top division football regularly in Europe last season was Matt Miazga at Anderlecht and I mean with all due respect to the Belgian Jupiler League it's it's not the highest level and I don't think anybody will be arguing that Matt Miazga is a is a massive name signing to be bringing in and so for me and I think for many others, the issue here isn't necessarily Javi Kieja, it isn't necessarily the manager. I think it's the quality of the squad. And they're very much, I've spoken before about Hosselu and his how key he is to the side and how without him that they would be cut adrift because his goals essentially keep them up every season. But they're now four to five, I think it's four and a half years in since they came up from the second division. And Jose Luis Mendilibar, who's who's coming in, he'll be their 10th appointment. And so, yeah, okay, you can argue perhaps they're employing a Watford style of management where the manager isn't the most important person and you bring someone in every time you look like you're going to struggle. And yeah, they're still in the first division, but I, I really don't see where the improvement is coming from because although they brought Mendilibar in, I, I, I'm a huge fan of Mendy Bar. I've spoken very, praised him a lot in the past. And I think many followers of La Liga are, are, are also sort of similarly minded on that section. But if you look at what Mendy Bar did at Abar, they were a club who did everything right for about six, seven years and just about managed to survive in the first division. Their recruitment was very good. And eventually sort of their, just, just sort of the law of averages sort of brought them down last season. Mendilibar plays a very organized system. He plays very high up in, in the pitch and he, he's very aggressive in his pressing. I don't know if this Alaves team is good enough to do that because I think Kayeka tried to do that in stages and in, in patches of, during the season, especially against sort of the mid-table opposition. I think he tried to be a bit more aggressive. But yeah, I, I think for me, Alaves need to be investing in the squad rather than spending that money in sacking managers. And it should be noted that the the ownership group who are in charge of Alaves, they're also perhaps a little bit more interested in Saski Basconia, who are the basketball team in Vittoria Gasteich, 
But yeah, I'm just not, I'm not convinced that bringing in Mendilibar, as good as he is, is going to make much of a difference if you can't surround Hosselu with a bit more talent. And Kayeka, for me, I mean, I, I've joked about him on the La Liga Loren podcast that I really like him as a manager. My biggest worry for him is that he doesn't have a floor. So like Zidane was well, well sort of publicized for having the floor. And I worry about Calleja. He might be quite a good manager, but he was sacked by Villarreal on two occasions, despite doing a good job, certainly on the second occasion. In this case, he's also been sacked, despite not doing a particularly poor job. In my mind, he's done a good job. And and I just worry that he's maybe not the luckiest of managers. So, yeah, interesting times for Alaves. I I'm not quite sure if they have the ambition to stay up almost. And and if you're not aiming for excellence, if you're not aiming, if you're only aiming to just survive, chances are you're gonna get sucked in. And as good as I think Mendili Bar is, I think he's a manager who who likes to have a bit of time on the training ground. And I'm not sure that he's going to have that with Alaves. So, yeah, they, if anything, not because Mendy Libar is a bad manager, but just because of the changeover and the sort of, I mean, obviously you get a new manager bounce, but the disruption, I think that's going to cause them more harm than it is good in this stage. Yeah, hopefully we see Kaleja soon. However, one face who we seem not to be able to get rid of in Spanish football is that of veteran Jorge Molina. He has many feats to his name, including leading Hetafe to Europe and more recently ending Barcelona's title challenge late last season. But one has eclipsed them all. He was instrumental as Granada beat Mallorca 4-1, making history in that match. Yes, he is now the oldest player to score a hat-trick in the top five leagues in Europe at the age of 39, which is pretty impressive when you consider some of the some of the faces in and around that sort of figure. Claudio Pizarro's in there, Teddy Sherman's in that list, um, and Joaquin was the one that he's pipped in La Liga now to, to hold that record. But Jorge Molina is just remarkable, the sort of standards that he's setting at his age. This is a player who was 28 before he played in La Liga. And especially about 10, 11 years ago, which is when that, when that occurred, generally you're sort of thinking he might have a year or two in La Liga before he maybe goes back down to the second division and plays out the final three or four years of his career. If you'd said to him that he was going to spend the following decade in La Liga, pretty much, that's, I, I don't think anybody would have even sort of fathomed that, so to speak. And his sort of professionalism and the way he goes about it is just so impressive. He's not been injured since he came to Granada, apart from, I think he had one sort of brief spell out with coronavirus. So he's not really picked up any injuries at all at the age of 39. And I, I can't think of another player who's really sort of doing that because it's, it's not as if this is him dropping down the levels and and sort of playing sort of yeah becoming becoming a new sort of bigger signing for a smaller team this is him playing at the maximum level that he's played played at throughout his career he led Hitafe to Europe not too long ago Granada recruited him and he was he was instrumental in their sort of European charge and yeah I've, I've got nothing but but respect and sort of admiration for for a man of that 
age being able to sort of cut it and, and being able to continually improve almost I mean I don't know if he'll have a better season than he did uh, one of the ones that he was at Hatafe, but just the there's the, the way he goes about his um craft so to speak he's really sort of mastered what he does he it's almost kind of rope dope the ball will come into him and he's so cool and so sort of well versed at what he's supposed to doing he'll draw the defenders in and play it off quickly it's not even about the goals with Jorge Molina because he does score goals but it's you look at the way that Hatafe have gotten on since he left them and their attacks never really been the same Enes now is starting to score a few goals but they they've never really recovered from the loss of Jorge Molina, which is is pretty, quite something to say for sort of uh well when he left he was about thirty eight, and uh, yeah, nothing but respect for Jorge Molina who's who's breaking records and long may it go on. Definitely, and finally the Valencian derby was about as thrilling as you can get with Levante racing into a two 0 lead before eventually being seen off four three. And one man stood out here, though, right? Yeah, wow. Um, Gonzalo Gedge. He obviously hasn't quite hit the heights that maybe some thought he would, especially when he moved to PSG. And then when Valencia made his movement permanent for about 35, 40 million euros. But when he's on song, there's few better watches in Spain. I was sort of hands on head, mouth wide open at this performance because every time he, well, not quite every time he touched the ball, but it seems like every time Valencia broke through, he was at the heart of it. He was playing that kind of weighted pass right into the path for Carlos Soler, which which was one of the, it was the go-ahead goal for Valencia. He scored an absolutely thumping goal, which went arrowed into the top corner from almost nothing as they were 2-0 down. Gets them back into the game. And then he also finishes it off by sort of going through one-on-one, sits down the keeper and the defender and passes it home. And it was it was done with a kind of Ronaldinho-like swagger of sort of this is uh, <laughs> this is my pitch and, and sort of nobody else can touch me tonight. Um, and admittedly, it was against Levante who struggled defensively quite considerably. But if Bordelas can get this kind of form out of Gedge and get this kind of form out of Carlos Soler, you have faith that he will continue fixing the defence and making them more solid, less likely to concede free goals to Levante. But yeah, what a performance from him. And just a reminder that the really best footballers, you don't have to have sort of a, a anything on the game. You don't have to have a, um, anything in the fight just to sit back and, and really enjoy really good footballers. And as I, as I kind of round off this section... On that note, um, I just wanted to say what a fantastic year it's been for Spanish football. Had um, Bono having a sort of equaliser for Sevilla late on, keeper keeper up from a corner, nothing beats that. You had Atleti almost choking in the second half of the season and having a historic throwaway of the title, but coming back and suffering in true style. Luis Suarez sticking it to his proverbial haters. Villarreal winning a first major title. Lareal and um, Real Sociedad winning an all-bass Copa del Rey final, picking up their first title since the 80s. You have the emergence of Pedri. You have the emergence of Vinicius. Granada beating Napoli at the San Paolo. Well, now the Estadio Diego Armando Maradona. And Cadiz going away to, to Real Madrid and winning, beating Barcelona as well at home. 
and we finished the year with Raya Vallecano in fourth and yeah it's been a pretty remarkable 2021 for many reasons but sometimes it's nice just to to remember all the good things that have happened as well absolutely Barlow and when you put it like that I think it's quite indisputable that Spanish football is thriving now we are going to take another quick break and we'll come back to have a look at one of the biggest cult heroes in not just French football but arguably European football in Teje Savanier. we'll be right back French football has served up a myriad of court heroes over the years. One such court hero is the playmaking midfielder Teji Savanier, whose Montpellier sides currently sit in fifth place in Ligue 1. While a repeat of their 2012 league-winning heroics would be highly unlikely this time around, the side from the south coast of France do, however, find themselves firmly in contention for one of the European spots. Just shining the spotlight on the excellent Savanier, how central has the 30-year-old captain been to Montpellier's success this season, Ali? Yeah, he's been really quite crucial, Michael. He's been a joy to watch, but he's also been crucial to just about everything good his side has done this season. To put it briefly, what I like about Savani, Michael, is that his ability on the ball coalesces really nicely with his ability off the ball. And there's a statistic or a pair of statistics, uh, which I'll... I'll tell you later, which I think really just epitomises everything about Teje Savanier. But just looking firstly at what he can do on the ball and what he can do off the ball, there is actually a, a really enlightening article on Savanier on the Total Football Analysis website. The name of the author escapes me at the moment, but uh, if you look for that, it's it's a highly enlightening piece talking about what Savanier does and the different aspects of his game on and off the ball. On the ball... He's really quite press resistant and he's got this marvellous range of passing. He's effective in tight spaces with the ball at his feet and then he can quickly open games up with probing passes in between the lines. And then off the ball, he's really hard working. He's sensible with his press. He's quite um, intelligent in that regard. And yeah, he's really quite tenacious. And I think... More generally, he just plays with a certain joie de vivre, Michael, and, and he possesses a certain je ne sais quoi, if you like. He's, he's perhaps the most enigmatic player in Ligue 1, and he's almost certainly the most fun player in Ligue 1. So whenever Montpellier are playing, whenever Savanier is playing, yeah, you, you have to watch him. He's just, he's marvellous. For two years under Michel Derzarkarian at Montpellier, Savanier played in a, a deeper role with his fair share of defensive responsibilities. He was a box-to-box midfielder of sorts, but now under Montpellier's new manager, Olivier Dallolio, who favours, yeah, generally favours a more expansive style of football, a more swashbuckling style of football, you might say. Under Dallolio, Savanier has been deployed as a 10 in a 4-2-3-1 formation, and... To put it briefly, he's absolutely reveling in that role. He's been liberated of most of his defensive responsibilities and he's been given real license to create for his side. Obviously, there are still some defensive responsibilities, but he's yeah, he's he's really been freed of the majority of those defensive obligations. 
And when you take that and you couple that liberation of sorts with the fact that Andy Delors is left for Nice and Gaetan Laborde is left for Glenn, uh, Savanier has the limelight almost exclusively to himself. And he is, he's thriving in that role. He's reveling in that role, as I mentioned earlier. Now, Dalolio himself has come out and said that the role that Savanier is currently playing, i.e. that sort of freer role as a 10 in a 4-2-3-1, is Savanier's best position. It's the role that suits him best. And his captain's numbers really do vindicate Dalolio's decision to play Savanier in that more advanced role. So just looking at the numbers so far this season, five goals and six assists in 16 league gun appearances and that means that he needs just one more goal and two more assists to equal his best ever return in a single league and season and I think well it's obvious it goes without saying that those numbers reflect the sense in moving Savani further forward and giving him more freedom to attack and yeah and giving him fewer defensive responsibilities just looking at some of the underlying numbers as well um, from FB ref uh, you've got Savanier sitting in the 92nd percentile for shot-creating actions, 84th percentile for key passes, 97th percentile for successful dribble percentage, and 93rd percentile for players dribbled past. He's also second in league on for goal-creating actions this season. And now a couple of stats, a pair of stats, if you like, those Stats I referenced earlier that I said I really liked because they really do, for me anyway, epitomise what Savani is all about as a player. He's top in league and this season for number of fouls drawn, but he's also third in league and this season for fouls committed. So he's one of the most fouled. He is the most fouled player and he's also one of the players committing the most fouls. That's what Savani is all about. He's glorious with his dribbling. He can really frustrate defenders and they just they dive in and they foul him and then he can he can produce one of his magnificent free kicks like he did against Mess. If you've not seen that, go and watch Savanier's free kick against Mess. So he can he can win the fouls, he can draw the fouls if you like, but he's also more than happy to yeah to get stuck in to commit those fouls. And and yeah that's what Teji Savanier is all about. You might recall <laughs> when Savanier, I think he was at Nîmes still at the time, Savanier trips uh Kylian Mbappe who was hurtling away from him at full pace on the counter-attack. And to be honest, I think if people were to suggest that it's not on their bucket list to try and trip up Kylian Mbappe at full pace and see what his reaction is, then I think they would be lying because, yeah, it's, it's one of the, the modern wonders of, of the world, Kylian Mbappe travelling at full speed. And, well, Savani is uh, quick thinking, shall we say, to, to trip Mbappe up. Certainly elicited the anger of Kylian Mbappe, but I think it just added to his aura and his mystique, if you like, the, the mystique and aura of, of Teji Savanier. Um, but of course, we're not advocating fouling players at all. We're, we're not saying that that's what you should be should be going out doing, but it does. It is, yeah, never, never. But it's it's a key part of, of Savanier's game uh, and it's, it's a wonderful game at that. Just on a closing note, Barlow, um, or before I come to my closing note, if if you can, if you find yourself thinking, oh, I'd quite like to maybe go and and, and watch some more of Savanier. Um, there's one game in particular which really encapsulates what Savanier is all about, and it's his performance in their four 0 win away at Brest, who we of course covered recently on the podcast. That four 0 win away at Brest from Montpellier put an end 
to Prest's record-winning run in the top flight, and Savani was central to all that. That that performance from Savani was majestic. One of the best performances, one of the best individual performances of the entire league and season to date. Um, Savani set up one goal and played key passes in two of the other three goals, and it's all around play. It was just it was almost flawless. He was. Yeah, he was perfect, and, and Bless just had no answer to his creativity and his all-round impact on the game. Now, on a closing note, Savanie was, of course, part of the much-maligned French squad, which performed so poorly at the Olympic Games in Tokyo this summer. He started all three games and scored in the 4-3 win over South Africa, but his experience overall wasn't anywhere near as romantic as we perhaps all hoped when we found out that he had been included in that Olympic squad. That said, his time with the Olympic squad clearly whetted his appetite to play for the national team. Speaking to RMC, he said that he's dreaming of being part of the squad that Didier Deschamps will take to the World Cup in Qatar next December. And when you think about it, at first, you think, hmm, bit of a long shot. Not sure if that would happen. But to be honest, Savani is in the form of his life. He's maturing like a fine wine. And you do have to ask the question, would he be the perfect wildcard pick for Les Bleus? Maybe. Let's see how he fares for the rest of the season. If he can keep going the way he has been going so far this season then absolutely I think he'll start to work his way more and more into the thoughts of Didier Deschamps. We're going to take a quick break now and fill up our water bottles. We'll come back to discuss German football. We're going to look at Hoffenheim's post-Julian Nagelsmann pursuit of happiness. We'll be right back. In Germany. Hoffenheim find themselves in fifth place at the halfway point of the Bundesliga season, just a point away from the Champions League places. Under the management of Sebastian Hoeneß, die Kreichgauer have found some impressive consistency of late, winning four of their last six games in the league. Over those six games, only Bayern Munich and Freiburg have picked up more points in Germany's top flight. The post-Nagelsmann era at the Prezero Arena has been rather confounding, to say the least. However, based on the recent evidence, would it be fair to suggest that Hoffenheim are now finally getting over the departure of Julian Nagelsmann in June 2019? Yeah, well, to answer your question, I think they're getting there, Barlow. They're just about getting over them. But I think what I noticed when I was researching for this section was that there's not been an awful lot written, there's not been an awful lot said on Hoffenheim recently and so I'm going to do an even deeper dive than usual into Hoffenheim and the two years at Hoffenheim since Nagelsmann departed, or two and a half years since Nagelsmann departed. So firstly I'm going to look at that time quite generally and look at some of the more difficult aspects of that and look at perhaps maybe why it wasn't really clicking. And then I'm going to look at Seb Hoeneß's style now at Hoffenheim and some of the key players in his system at the pre-zero arena. Now, you'll remember, Barlow, the wave of anti-Dietmar Hopp banners in stadiums across Germany at the start of 
2020. Just as a reminder, Hop is the software billionaire who has played a considerable role in sort of elevating Hoffenheim from the fifth tier of German football to the Bundesliga. He has invested a lot of money into the club to allow them to go from the fifth tier to the top flight. Now, a lot of German football fans see Hopp's financial backing of Hoffenheim as something which really undermines the traditional values of German football. And the most notable crystallisation of that anti hop sentiment took place during Hoffenheim, rather Hoffenheim's 6-0 <laughs> loss at home to Bayern in February 2020. The game stopped after Bayern Munich fans in the away corner unfurled an anti-hop banner. Players then returned for the final 15 minutes after a quite considerable delay. And for those final 15 minutes, they basically just passed the ball about amongst themselves. It was quite surreal, uh, Barlow. And, and that anti-hop sentiment forms part of a wider animosity towards Hoffenheim as a club. Now, that animosity towards Hoffenheim has, I think, over the course of the pandemic, shifted towards an indifference. Barlow, don't get me wrong, there's still a residual animosity of sorts towards Hoffenheim, but I do think we've seen a shift towards indifference. And if Hoffenheim were playing at the bottom of the typical German football fans' garden, you wouldn't be too surprised if they simply shut their curtains over and looked for something else to do. People just don't really want to talk about Hoffenheim. They don't really care about Hoffenheim. And for me, I, I think there is an argument to be made that we should perhaps be paying them more attention. Now, I'll come on to why I think we should be paying them more attention shortly, but just to look again at that sort of transition period from Nagelsmann to now, the the anti-hop banners and that anti-hop sentiment did really further complicate what was an already complicated period for the club following Nagelsmann's departure. Now, Alfred Schroeder was in charge at the time of the anti-hop banners, and you might remember Schroeder reportedly fell out with Alexander Rosen, the sporting director at Hoffenheim, after Rosen took the side of Pavel Kaderzabek when Kaderzabek allegedly made himself unavailable for selection in a match against Mainz in May 2020 because his pet wasn't keeping well. I think Schroeder's take was, well, you're playing, why would, why would you not play? And Rosen took the sides of Kader Zabek. He was more sympathetic to what Kader Zabek was thinking. Um, and perhaps unsurprisingly, shortly after that game against Mainz, Schroeder was sacked with just four games of the season Remaining now, ostensibly, Hoffenheim were doing fine under Schroeder. They were sitting seventh, but I think Barlow, I think the Kaderzabek incident and the messaging coming out of the club at the time of the sacking did betray quite significant differences of opinion between Schroeder and members of the hierarchy and Alexander Rosen, the sporting director at Hoffenheim. Now, Schroeder was replaced with Sebastian Hoeneß, son of Dieter and nephew of Early Hoeneß. Hoeneß, of course, served as the president of Bayern Munich and now still has a role on the supervisory board at the Allianz Arena. Now, Sebastian Hoeneß had won the German third division title with Bayern's reserves and he was very highly thought of. So his appointment at Hoffenheim was extremely exciting. And to be fair, in that first season, they had a barnstorming Europa League group stage, picking up 16 out of 18 points. 
but they did really struggle domestically in the league. Now, Europe fell, and this is maybe a lazy observation, but I think it holds true. Europe did feel like a distraction for Hoffenheim in the sense that Hoeneß didn't really have the time as a new manager at the top level for the first time in his career to mould and implement game plans for Europe and mould and implement game plans for their Bundesliga games. And quite tellingly as well, in terms of fatigue perhaps, they picked up just one win in the six match days immediately following their Europa League group stage games. So there was quite a swing from success in Europa League to yeah, to struggling in the Bundesliga. They did, however, finish the season, last season, in quite encouraging fashion, going seven games without defeat and ultimately finishing in 11th place. Now, the reason I've told you all of that is because I really want to try and convey the fact that, as you would expect, life after Julian Nagelsmann has been far from easy for Hoffenheim. There's been issues on and off the field of play. That said... Under Hoeneß this season, Hoffenheim looked to have found their rhythm once again and the club just feels more settled. Comparisons in terms of coaching style have been drawn between Sebastian Hoeneß and Hansi Flick. Now, you might remember Hansi Flick also spent time as Hoffenheim manager at the start of the 21st century, five years at Hoffenheim between 2000 and 2005. And like Flick, Seb Hoeneß regularly deploys a 4 2 3-1 formation, but he does like to occasionally mix it up and go with three at the back. And just more generally in terms of that style, you can tell there's a real desire to play expansive attacking football and the way he wants his team to play really fits in perfectly with the Hoffenheim philosophy, you know, promoting young coaches, playing attractive football. Yeah, so I think Hoeneß and Hoffenheim are, are a perfect fit. Without the distraction of European football, I'm not too surprised that they've kicked on this season and shown more consistency. Now, the obvious duel in the crown is 30-year-old forward Andre Kramaric. When he's fit, he's capable of putting in some really quite sublime performances. Usually scores goals for fun, but this time around, he's only scored two goals in 16 Bundesliga appearances. That said, I don't think that's too much to worry about because his real value to the team this season anyway, has come from his movement and his ability to create and enable in the final third. Uh, just looking at some of his stats, he's third for through balls this season in the Bundesliga. I love that statistic. We all enjoy a through ball. He's eighth for goal-creating actions this season in the Bundesliga. And then in terms of where he sits in the various charts across the top five leagues in Europe, he's in the 92nd percentile for assists per 90 and he's in the 89th percentile for key passes per 90 across the top five leagues in Europe. So maybe we're not seeing as much from him by way of goals, but we're still seeing plenty of creativity from Andre Kramaric. He's been at the club since 2016, so he was there through the Nagelsmann years, he was there through the Schroeder regime, and now he's he's thriving under Sebastian Hoeneß. And I think Barlow, there's an argument to be made that he's the greatest player in Hoffenheim's history, 99 goals and 43 assists registered in 202 games. I think we really need to give Andre Kramaric his flowers. Elsewhere in the team, just looking at some of the younger players, Kramaric is obviously 30 and he's a lot more experienced than some of the younger players in this team, but this team has its fair share of exciting youngsters. One player in particular who I like to highlight is Chris Richards. He's developing nicely at centre-back. He's 
21 years of age and he scored a last minute winner against Freiburg on match day 15 and won himself the Bundesliga's Man of the Match Day award for his performance on that occasion. He was actually, just as a side note, Hoffenheim's 15th different scorer in the league already. They've now had 16 different goal scorers, actually. No team has managed more different goal scorers. Uh, but that, that's an aside. Just turning our attention back to Chris Richard, he's started two of the last four games for the US men's national team as well. Seems to be playing himself into contention to become a regular starter for the US men's national team. Uh, just looking at his underlying statistics, 87th percentile for aerials, 1 per 90, 87th percentile for blocks per 90, 84th percentile for progressive passes per 90, 98th percentile for successful pressures applied per 90, and the 83rd percentile for tackles and interceptions per 90. Now, those stats are all really encouraging, and he's, he's enjoying a really successful season under Sebastian Hoeneß at Hoffenheim. Nothing too spectacular, but the, the signs are that he's developing with every or almost every passing week, every passing month, perhaps he's, he's getting better and better. And I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that he's already worked with Sebastian Hoeneß. He played under Sebastian Hoeneß in that Bayern reserves team. He had a breakthrough season of sorts under Hoeneß at Bayern reserves. And so I think the fact that the two of them are working together, um, I think that was always going to lead to, to Chris Richards having a, a fairly successful time of it on loan at Hoffenheim. Now, come the end of this loan spell at Hoffenheim, this is the second loan spell at Hoffenheim, you do have to think, will he be ready to challenge for a place in the first team at Bayern Munich? I think at the moment he's still quite some distance away from being a first-choice pick, but let's see how he does for the remainder of the season. Let's see if he can continue to progress and put himself in contention for, you know, at least having, if not a regular place, then, then an occasional place in the Bayern Munich team. It does feel appropriate to be highlighting Hoffenheim's youngsters, given Hoeneß's managerial background. He's obviously spent a lot of time working with youth teams, spent a lot of time working with Bayern's reserves. And just to mention, if you like, a couple of the other young players in this Hoffenheim team, you've got 20-year-old defensive midfielder Angelino Steer. You've got 19-year-old forward Jorginho Ruter. Uh, you've also got 23-year-old Dennis Gagge. You've got 22-year-old Christopher Baumgartner. So many really exciting young players in there who, of course, they're not the finished article. They're quite some distance from being the finished article. They're not polished, to put it that way, Barlow. But they're players who you can watch and enjoy watching and I think we'll probably go on to have fine Bundesliga careers. Um, there's one player in particular that I do want to spotlight because I'm aware that we don't have enough time to look at all those players in detail, but one player in particular I want to spotlight is 23-year-old left-back, David Raum. Now, you might remember David Raum played a key role in the Germany team, which won the under-21 European Championship in the summer. He was excellent in the left side of Germany's defence alongside Nico Schrotterbeck, who we've also mentioned on this podcast before. He's having a brilliant season with Freiburg. Um, and, and a remarkable piece of business. It really was quite remarkable. Hoffenheim signed Raum on a free transfer from newly promoted Greuther Fürth and there probably is an argument to me that this is one of the best signings, one of the best pieces of business across the top five leagues in Europe because in the second tier with Greuther Firth, Raum had been phenomenal. He scored the goal and provided 15 assists from the left side. And yeah, I think at the time people said 
this looked like an excellent move by Hoffenheim and that has proven to be 100% true. He's been excellent for Hoffenheim this season. He's also gone on to make three appearances for the senior German national team, so Hansi Flick is quite clearly a fan. The Bundesliga website, I've mentioned the Bundesliga website quite a few times. I think it's an excellent resource. It puts out some excellent content and, and they compare Raum to David Alaba in the sense that he's played in left mid, he's played at left back and he's played as a centre mid. And perhaps because of that, he's really quite comfortable on the ball. He's got good awareness to know when to cut inside and he knows when to go down the flank as well. This is all observations which were raised by the Bundesliga website. And, and the Bundesliga website also says that he's he's good at using his speed and his strength to attack defenders. And he's also well, he's got a, a fairly decent cross on him, but he's also good at playing the ball into the feet of his teammates in the final third. So yes, he can whip across him, but he can also pick out his men uh, with a pass to their feet. And I, I think he's just got this really exciting skill set and a skill set which is allowing him to thrive at left back for Hoffenheim. Now, just looking at his numbers this season, five assists and a goal in 16 Bundesliga appearances. He's second for crosses into the penalty area in the Bundesliga this season, fifth for passes into the penalty area in the Bundesliga this season. Across the top five leagues, 99th percentile for expected assists per 90 and 99th percentile for shot-creating actions per 90. Those numbers are absolutely outstanding, Barlow. It does feel like David Graham is the player with the highest ceiling in this Offenheim squad. We've obviously seen him profiled by the Bundesliga website. We've seen a lot of people on Twitter waxing lyrical about David Graham's ability and his potential. I think, yeah. I'm going to say it again. I think he's a player with the highest ceiling in this Hoffenheim squad. Let's see how far he can go. Just on a closing note, as I've said before, I do have quite a soft spot for Hoffenheim. I made the trip across the border to watch Hoffenheim on several occasions when I was living in Strasbourg, and that was during the peak Nagelsmann days when you know Hoffenheim were just a joy to watch. And so I do have a soft spot for them, and I'm really glad to see them doing so well under Hernes. They're playing some nice football. They have a talented squad. And in Hernes, they have an exciting up-and-coming coach willing to trust and develop young players. Maybe we should start to pay them attention once again. That is a wrap for 2021 and the Road to Nowhere European Football podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight's time with our opening episode of 2022. We'll also have our 50th special, our 50th episode special towards the end of January. All we can say is thank you so much for being with us throughout the year. If you haven't already done so, please do consider subscribing. And if you listen to us on Spotify, please do consider leaving us a rating. They've now added a feature which allows you to rate us. If you could take a few seconds to do that, it would be enormously appreciated. It would really help us to grow And yeah, we would be so, so grateful. Rudy Barlow, thanks for your contribution and your time this evening. No no worries. And I just, uh, yeah, echo that thought as well. Thank you very much for for being with us on the 2021 journey and chapter. Absolutely, Barlow. Just one chapter in a huge Road to Nowhere book. Of course, Michael Jones has actually departed already. He is heading off out for some drinks and some food. So we gave him permission to leave early, but I'm sure Michael would also (laughs) pass on his thanks to you, the listener. And on that note, 
Please do have a safe new year. Please do have an enjoyable new year. We'll see you in 2022. Until next time, goodbye.